0: Hello and welcome to One For The Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My sponsors for season three of One for the Road are the amazing Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee, who are both in recovery and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. The boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear don't need alcohol to have a good time so let's all rock sober and remember the good times with rock sober af drinks my guest today on the final episode of season three is a sober blogger a writer of scripts and novels and a mental health warrior She is also a single mum of an absolute superstar. So please welcome today on One for the Road, the wonderful Leanne Bayliss. So Leanne welcome to my show one for the road we've uh, known each other for a few months now from Instagram and you are sober little mothered and I love the work that you do Uh, I think you're amazing and I've invited you on today because I know um, your story is really really powerful and um, you've kindly agreed to share it today so firstly how are you?
1: Yeah, thank you, Dave. Firstly, thank you for having me on and allowing me to voice, you know, my backstory on, on such a such a platform. I have to say this podcast has personally helped me through my sobriety, as have you feel that we have gone a bit full circle because my sobriety wouldn't have really started if all those months ago 20 something months ago when I started looking at sobriety I hadn't found your account and I have reached out to you and you know we've been doing things together and I'm so so grateful um but yeah just thank you so much for just doing all the things that you do. And hopefully I'm another person behind you now banging that drum as loud as we possibly can. So thank you.
0: Oh, honestly, you you are doing so much amazing work. So thank you too, because it's powerful that we bang the drum together in this wonderful yeah. community. So do you want to wind it right back to when you was a little girl?
1: So the story uh, starts, I think, with the trauma, which then progressed to the drinking such a long time ago. as, As a little girl, I was adopted into a wonderful family that have just treated me no different to anyone else within the family. I have been loved. I have been cared for. Um, But I think throughout childhood, because I was always aware I was adopted and the things that that did go on and the reason for my adoption, I think that I always struggled to to find connection, to find the piece of the puzzle, really. I, I think I struggled to identify with family. I always, and I still do today, have questions of, Where do I get this from? Why do I look like this? You know, and I think throughout childhood, you don't really know things are affecting you. But till later on in life, when you look back and you say, oh, actually, I never identified as any, you know, I couldn't find identification. So maybe that's why I was so lost along the way. had a a very nice childhood you know I was bullied at school horrifically for being adopted which was something that I think uh, even as a child I was quite proud of and quite open because my parents were always really open about it with me and I think that helped because of the colour of my hair as well I don't think it helped I was a little orphan Annie. But I just kind of got on with it and I turned to, and I think this was the start of my addictive behaviour, turned to food, got very large at a very young age, um, put on a lot of weight, then would get more bullied and then would eat more. And, you know, sort of just, you know, there was just too much, too much to, to cope with. And I think... Even from an early age, you know, when we were on a Sunday round for dinner, round the table, there was this thing that was called wine. And, you know, it had been, I always saw the adults drinking it. And I saw, you know, people having a good time and being these people that, you know, I wanted to be this confident and this shining person that had this voice and could speak. Because I think for a lot of my childhood, I just wanted to hide I didn't know who I was from not knowing my identification and I didn't really you know I didn't have a set group of friends I sort of dipped in in and out of everyone so when you know at nine ten years old you're offered a glass of wine around the table and it's this magical thing and you take it because everybody else does it and it was it was just the acceptable odd glass of wine, or you know, if we were on holiday, you know there'd be some wine or half a beer and you could have it. You know, my parents wouldn't actively encourage it, but it was it was there. Then secondary school, you know, I wasn't I knew I was around alcohol, but it wasn't a big deal because I'd already had it, so, I was just going to have more of it. And it's, you know, I would sneak it into school. Um, I would drink it after school. I would drink it on the 894 bus on the way home. Parties, I would be known as the one that would get all the booze and turn up with it all. Because I think for a lot of my time as well, which I am ashamed about now, I think because of my addiction throughout several things in my life, I've been a feeder, so I wanted to get drunk, so I'd buy alcohol, so other people did it, so I'd feel better about myself, you know, the same with cocaine and weed later on in life, and, you know, it it does haunt me, but you can't change some of the things that you, you do. Um, so alcohol growing up for me as a teenager was just massive. Everything, you know, from Thursday, knew didn't have to do much at school on a Friday. So we'd try and get really drunk after school. You know, I think my parents were aware at some points. We had a few conversations, but I don't think they knew to the level that I was doing it or the fact that, you know, it would be in the locker at school as well. After school, I uh, went to college. That was the key to opening up the door to drugs. I'd done booze, I'd been pissed, I'd been to every party going, and now I wanted more. So then it was weed, and then it was cocaine, and then it was ecstasy. I completely didn't care about going to college. I only went to college to enable me to get out of the house to allow me to do all the things that I wanted to do. And I remember one of my lecturers, Nick Hunt, There was a pub called the Dirty Duck by the river in Stratford where I went to college and he came the one day and he sat down and he said, if you're not going to come to my fucking lesson, then I will come to you because you are not going to waste what you have and what you are. And I did. And And I looked at him and I promised him that I'd start going to lectures and everything like that. And I didn't. And I know I know it pains him as much because I did I did have the shining you know potential the talent and I scraped I scraped through Dave like you know I didn't do all the things that I could have achieved and I can only learn from them and not make the same mistakes again but that was kind of like a wake-up call for me which I took in for about three days and then just went on an absolute fucking bender and fucked everything off and you know caused massive destruction you know I think my middle name for a long time was self-sabotage. You know, I was just key to destroying myself. Um, I was a professional dancer for, for a very long time. And then after college, I got into it. I got offered a place at several high dance schools. I had a really bad accident and I was injured. And also within the training of dancing as well. I don't know if people know this, but it's something that I'm working upon. Lots of ballerinas for the long days, you know, we are bashing coke. We are bashing coke at half five in the morning to go and stand there to be shouted at till our feet bleed and then have to do it again. You know, you can't be a person because you're just this moving thing that doesn't have feelings that will get up, get on your toes, get on your points. You know, know, you're doing 18 hour days and you're probably about five and a half stone because you're not eating and you're just sniffing coke. And I think... It's something that I just really want to highlight in the future. And I'm trying to work with a few dance schools at the moment to try and you know, steer the path away from it. Because, you know, you've got the celebrity lifestyle, you've got all these different lifestyles that, you know, and I don't think that anyone thinks that these little ballerinas are actually raving cokeheads. And it's, it is a massive problem within the dancing industry. So obviously, after my career ended at the grand old age of 23, which was very, very painful. You know, what am I going to do now? I've fucked up college. I've fucked up my dancing career. You know, just everything I seemed to just destroy. After the dancing, so say around 23, that was it then. I just didn't care about anything or anyone. I turned into a human being that I look back at now that I didn't know. I was selfish. You know, I'd have jobs just to pay bills and to get gear. I wasn't motivated. I wasn't happy. I would just go from relationship to relationship to relationship. But above work or a career or or relationships, the only thing that was keeping me going or I strive for was the Thursday, the Friday night in the pub, the Saturday. Um, I then went into a job of recruiting recruitment which is also a heavy drinking culture but this is the thing throughout my career I just used to find jobs where I could drink because it was you know it enabled me and I know that I wasn't going to walk out of that job because I could get what I wanted within within that place. Um, Recruitment was definitely definitely The completely wrong move for me, especially doing the catering sector, which just allowed me to be in pubs, bars, restaurants and hotels drinking all day, you know, smoothing all the clients. It it was just a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. And everything spiralled, spiralled and spiralled out of control. I think and I talk to my friends now about this. Everyone knew, but no one really knew. And I know that sounds mad. But when I say that, everyone knew that I was this person that relied on drugs and drink and probably did have a problem. But no one knew I was that girl that was getting up. And rather than going to the toilet first thing in the morning, it was a line of cocaine on the side that if I didn't have, I'd be scraping backs of credit cards or looking in my bag for like bits of dust that were probably cigarette ash and stuff like that and I'd still sniff it just to you know crave that th- that addiction that I had. Um nothing really got better. I mean for years and years I was in this massive spiral like I got out of recruitment because I think at one point I thought yeah this is not doing me any any favors at all. So then I decided to run a bar with my friend because I thought that was an even better idea. Obviously That was that was the start of sobriety, really, I think, looking back at it, because detrimentally on several occasions, I almost died. You know, it was uh, days, it was weeks. I would go on benders for weeks. I would sleep at the bar. I would take money out of the till to buy drugs. You know, me and my friend both had horrific drink and drug problems, and we were running a bar.
0: How old were you when you started this bar?
1: So it was 20, 28.
0: Oh, so 28 years old. And it sounds to me like right from the off, your life has been quite chaotic. Highs and lows, you know, um, your adoption when you were a child and then the weight gain and then being bullied at school. Then you became a dancer. Um, that caused problems. Then you had the terrible accident. And it's so many peaks and troughs in your, your life. And it's you pick recruitment because of the drinking. Then you go and pick a bar, which is, in hindsight, a real um, road to disaster, isn't it?
1: I think, as you say, there's so many peaks and troughs and the highs have just been, like, you know, at some points when I was in recruitment, the money I was earning, like, was phenomenal. Mm. You know, being such a good dancer at, at the age I was is, you know, still is heartwarming. But the lows have been really, really low and I've let them continue for years and years. And when I was at the bar... I remember the glass wash man coming in to fix the glass washer. And he looked at me and he said, you need to eat something, girl. And I said to him, I've had my breakfast this morning. I've had half a bottle of wine, two lines of coke and a spliff. And he laughed. But that was, that was the truth at, mm. at half nine in the morning. And um, it could have gone two ways. That bar could have been the death of me or what it actually turned out to be in Rolls reverse was the life of me. And it made me change everything.
0: Can I ask, at that exact time, what
1: did you think of yourself? I just thought every day and all day, because I think because of adoption, because I've had some disastrous relationships, you know, I've never, I always go for people that need fixing, I feel, and I think that I can fix them, but I can't. And detrimentally in time, I've ended up damaging myself more. I I can't really answer that question because I think for such a long time I thought nothing. I didn't think I was bad, I didn't think I was good, I just thought I was nothing. That I felt sometimes that I wasn't worthy of existence. I know that I felt that a lot of the time I didn't and towards the later years so after about 26 you know Oh, I have also missed a bit out as well, which I will just briefly go into. But um, I lived in Cavos for two years as a holiday rep as well, after the whole dancing career thing. Um, That also didn't. It was like I was actively trying to just destroy. I would find things that, one, would enable me to drink and do drugs, and two, to not have to be who I was, to hide always behind things. And I could never hold a conversation with anyone unless I'd have, like, had a drink. And as I say, I think I just didn't feel worthy of existence. And some days I look back at that, that girl who I was, and she was numb she she actually she felt worthless but she felt numb and she mm. didn't care whether she she took a breath she didn't care if she she was dead she didn't acknowledge anything or anyone around her you know I know that you can probably relate to this but when you are i i, I identify as a functioning alcoholic a lot of people didn't know I was doing what I did I still got up for work I still got dressed I still looked you know, nice and, you know, still wash my clothes, pay my bills, you know, had a roof over my head. But, you know, it's, you become very selfish. There is nothing around you, but you, there is only what you need to feed yourself, your mind, your body, and essentially your addiction. Mm. And it's only stepping out of it and looking back that, I think oh that girl even though she had all those problems even though she was an addict she still had so much going for her and I wish I could step back and one give that girl a hug and two you know tell her that everything will be all right and that there is special magic within her that she just needs to pull out you know and I think and just I wasn't very good at, which is funny now, because the amount I talk, as you know, on Instagram and things like this. But I just wasn't very good at talking, just wasn't very good at talking. And when you hold stuff in for such a long time, decades, mm. and you've just destroyed yourself through through alcohol, you just become an ultimate mess, like an an untieable knot. I always like to refer to knots that I was just so twisted. I was so bitter and I was so twisted Towards the end of the bar life, I found out I was pregnant with my daughter, Darcy, um, who is now almost five. Can't believe how the time has gone so quick. It was a shock. She wasn't planned. I wasn't in a loving relationship. Best thing, though, that has ever happened to me. Darcy's father left me during pregnancy. So that was a bitter pill to swallow as well, knowing that I was going to do all of this alone. Went for just a normal scan, um, 20 week scan. And then they called me into another room to have another scan. And then they called me into another room to have another scan. And I thought there's something going on here. I was called into a room and they informed me that darcy was um had a heart condition called pulmonary atresia um that they could see some other things on her heart as well and they couldn't tell me the other things what they would be i had a list of different things that she could also be born with that were linked to cognitive heart disease and and all other things that could possibly she could have and i was took into another room and given 10 minutes to make the decision to stop her heart and give birth to her or whether to have her with only a 4% chance of her surviving that anyway and i just remember looking at my 70-year-old dad who'd come with me because he'd never let me do anything on my own bless him and say get me the fuck out of this room get me out of this room and I just had to that day go with hope and at this point I'd, I'd stopped drinking because I didn't drink in my pregnancy because I felt so so sick all the time and I'm not gonna lie and I'm gonna be really honest I think if I had the opportunity and I could have I would have drank while while being pregnant and I know that's just me being honest you know and it's not something that I'm proud of but I've always said recovery is about honesty Mm. because after so many years of lying you you just I never want to tell a lie again so it was a very difficult pregnancy Um, obviously because I had stopped drinking I was sort of getting a grip on my mental health and you know feelings I started to feel things Dave and I wasn't I wasn't used to feeling things. It wasn't nice. Um, Obviously, during pregnancy, knowing that the chance that you're going to have the child that you're carrying is so slim. It was just horrible. I don't have any pictures of me pregnant. I hid my pregnancy. I remember someone saying to me, God, are you pregnant? And I was eight and a half months pregnant because I hadn't told anyone because I didn't want to have those horrible, awkward conversations of, you know my daughter's probably going to die then on the 2nd of december i went into labor very fast very scary my elected due date was 2 weeks after when she was coming it was it wasn't the joyous moment that everyone else has when they get in the bags to go to hospital i remember my dad phoning my sister and saying you need to get here in case she doesn't make it and like my whole family came to the hospital just in case it was goodbye and I had her and I remember really clearly saying to the nurse you know is when she came out she was crying and I was told that you know she wouldn't probably cry um she'd be blue and she was crying crying and crying almost like a scream and I just looked at the nurse and was like is that my baby the the pure shock of it all I didn't see Darcy then for several hours. I knew from the looks of what people were giving, and the running around, and the, the whispering, and the, the just the sheer chaos that there was. You know, something else severely wrong as well. Um, they took her. I didn't. I didn't see her. I didn't touch her. I didn't. Didn't see any part of her. She just got took in an ambulance to Birmingham Children's Hospital. Six, I think it was, yeah, about six and a half hours later, I discharged myself out of Heartlands Hospital in Birmingham under the, the, I, I was told not to, but I did. And I went to Birmingham Children's Hospital because I wanted to see my daughter because I knew from the phone calls that the surgeons had phoned me. She had to go straight into surgery, and I and I really wanted to meet her. And I got to Birmingham Children's Hospital, and to law, this is Dave, that um, the two lifts that are there were both out of order. So after having a caesarean, I had to then climb two flights of stairs. And I'll never forget the adrenaline or the power I felt walking up those stairs. It was like I had wings. It was literally like I was flying. And I got to the ward and I looked at the nurses and they didn't have to talk to me. They didn't have to say anything. I knew where she was. I could feel her. And the minute that I saw her, it was, it was. I can't ever explain to anyone. We melted. We melted into each other. And since that day, we we're just part of each other. Between the thousands of bloody wires coming out of her you know she was like a, a small handheld dot but she was so big because she had that many wires and tubes and things coming out of her but we melted together and I then was took into a room and told you know she had uh, pulmonary atresia VSD of fellows she had impurated anus so she was wasn't born with a bottom so if she then went to the toilet you know that would cause her to die so it was quickly put a colostomy bag on her you know there were several things and the journey was really really quite tough so I had her and we didn't leave hospital for six months we were in there from the day that she was born for six months so you know the nice uh, part of You know, you see these people lying on the sofas with the babies lying on their chest and stuff like that. My time with my newborn was spent around lots of watching lots of other people and their struggles. And this is when alcohol started to creep in again. You know, there was a pub called the Jekyll and Hyde opposite. And I would have friends come in to say hi to me and hi to Darcy and my parents. And it would be like, the pub break. that And I, I can do a bottle of wine in six seconds, you know. So I would leave my child in intensive care. And I, this sounds terrible, but I want people to know this so they don't do it. I would leave intensive care and I would run over to the pub and I would drink as much as I could in a half an hour or an hour and then go back and sit there. And the pain... The pain was atrocious and it will always be. And I think because it wasn't just what I was going through on the ward, I saw six children die and I saw the devastation of their families of what they had to go through as well. So the drinking, the longer I was there, the heavier the drinking got. I got out with Darcy and we came home and things started to... Chill out a bit. I was very stressed, you know. But I had this baby where I didn't have people around me to so the drinking really stopped in the daytime, but hit hard at bedtime. So I would do all day, you know, the care, the extra care that I have to give Darcy all the time as well is quite intense. And for the first, when I first had her home for the first six months, we had an aptomat, which is where. It basically alarms if they stop breathing. So, even at nighttime when she was asleep, I would put my alarm on my phone every half an hour. And I did that for six months. I literally didn't sleep for six months. So, with the drinking, you know, on top of that, to where I was just trying to numb it out, just to get some, I didn't want to feel any of these feelings. So, drinking was just numbing everything out. And then We got to the point where I would put her to bed, say about seven, and I would drink two, three, four bottles of wine a night. And I would find that normal. You know, I wouldn't say that I was smashed off my face. I wouldn't say that I was unable to care for my child. I'd call myself tipsy because I was so used to drinking that quantity and that amount it didn't really seem to touch the sides so months later uh, started to try and get my life back where we have always been and will always be in and out of hospital Darcy's on operation 39 you know four of them being open heart surgery but the older she got I remember the first time my parents had her overnight instead of taking some time and rest and relaxation I went on a coke bender I went on a bloody coke bender and when they dropped her home I was coming home at the time they were dropping her home and then you know I'm, I'm sure me and my parents have spoken about this and we're very honest about it and I'm honest to all my friends but you know it, it just got out of control it just got so so out of control. And then in 2019, in the September, I started to feel really, I've never felt mentally stable. I've always had counselling. I've always been on tablets. I've always been on antidepressants. But this was this was more than that. This was, you know, the depths of feeling worthlessness. But I was planning my death. You know, I've still got the letter that I wrote to Darcy with my goodbye. And it was dark. It was a dark time. And um, I just remember my friend Jodie coming round and saying, we need to help you. And I just broke down because that was it. Someone knew that I needed that help. And she just kept saying to me, I know that today, tomorrow, or the day after, I'm going to get that call or a policeman At my house telling me that you're dead and i can't do that so from that day i got some help through uh, mind i went to uh, the doctors i had private counseling i had cbt i was diagnosed uh, with postnatal depression post-traumatic stress disorder anxiety depression and I didn't realise how severe all my trauma had been throughout the years, especially the reason behind my adoption. And I got help, and my help was for my mental health because at this point, Dave, even though I knew I was heavily drinking, you know, I was just drinking to obviously help my mental health. I still had a very, I was very detached from the fact that I had a drinking problem. And I think that it's only recently that. I've I've actually come to terms with that, you know, when I first went sober, one of the first things I used to say to people is I'm sober but I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I don't have a drink problem because you know, the word stigma which I'll come to later, but um I got help for my mental health and then obviously coming to the realization of why I was drinking and what the drinking was for And then actually discussing the the quantities that I was drinking. Because at the start of getting my mental health, I was still drinking. And one of my counsellors said to me, if you are serious about this, every aspect of your life has to be stripped back. And can you not just go two months without alcohol and see what change that it does? And it was like, I remember coming out of the counselling session and I went straight to straight to the pub, didn't I, like an idiot, straight to the pub. But I had one pint and I thought about what he'd said to me. And I thought, actually, the only thing that I haven't tried throughout my life is taking alcohol away. You know, I've swapped groups of friends when people have pissed me off. I've changed jobs when I don't like my job anymore. And, you know, have I really looked at, at this thing called alcohol, you know, drugs? After Darcy, um, didn't didn't really happen, to be honest, because I just never wanted to do them around her. I would have a bender if she was away for the evening. But drink, you just think it's this thing that, because it's in the supermarket, it's all right. And because everyone else does it it's, it, it's okay and it's not. So this was September 2009 and it took me till July 2020 to come round to the idea of quitting booze. I mean, I tried, and I failed. And then I try and and I'd fail. But each time I tried, and I had a lapse, it was never as big as the one before. And it was never a full on bender. It was like, my mind was just trying to convince myself that this is something that I should do. But I had to do it slowly. I couldn't just delve into it. And on the 20th of July, uh, 25th of July, 2020, was my last drink. And I would like to say forever. I feel because of my addictive personality, I can never say never. But my God, I've worked so hard that I hope it is forever and that things don't go back to the way they were. Because I never knew for 38 years Well, 36, I'm going to say, give two almost of sobriety of who I was, you know, and I can't get those things back. And I look at all the times when I thought I was having fun or living this, you know, this great life because I had money and I was out all the time and I was partying. But I don't remember my 18th birthday. I don't remember my 21st. I don't remember my 30th. I don't remember all of these monumental moments of my life you know and it's just it's devastating it's things you can't ever get back in the last two years as well of my sobriety I've lost my cousin Paul to alcohol at the age of 40 and I've lost my best friend Maxwell at the age of 32 to alcohol and drugs and it just makes sobriety for me if only I knew now what you know then what I knew now to help those people, maybe I could have made a difference to to them, you know, rather than thinking of all the times when we all session together. You you never know, actually, it just takes one one last drink and it could it could be your last.
0: Leanne, what all I'll say about that is it's all in hindsight, isn't it? And you know, yeah listening to you there is just a, a huge journey of turmoil and you know, I asked you before, what did you think of yourself there? And, and you touched on it after of lack of self-worth and that, because it just seemed to me you were just getting through life the best way you can. And it sounds everything you've dealt with has been really, really traumatic. And it feels like a lot of it you've dealt with on your own. So you become incredibly resilient, you know, and um, wow. Wow honestly i just sat there with my mouth open listening to that whole conversation and uh it's easy uh, if you haven't had that problem with alcohol it's easy to judge when you say you were drinking three or four bottles of wine a night when your daughter's in the next room and you you didn't even feel tipsy you were just coping the best way you can and then afterwards you were diagnosed with mental illness and that's when it was the uh, beginning of your journey to seek help you know and you know sometimes we underestimate mental illness and I've been there I've been there I've got home from the pub and thought I want to kill myself and I've got I've gone through the drawers looking for tablets my wife's in bed kids are in bed and there's me desperately trying to find it because I didn't know where to go in my life I was in such a bad place and it had nothing to do with how I felt about M, nothing to do with how I felt about the kids I, w- I just had nowhere else to turn you know so I totally understand that
1: I think for me as well I don't know about you I just always no one made me feel like this but I just felt like a burden I bought nothing but badness, you know, nothing good happened in my life, I've got, you know, I failed at this, I failed at that, you know, my daughter's poor, you know, just I've always felt like I came with no goodness, I just came with badness and and I think that's why I just had so little time for myself in the end, you know.
0: I know, and I understand that because I I felt similar. Because um, I've said before, when my mum left, she left me a letter when I was 14 um, saying that she'd left. And then my dad met someone else pretty quickly. And my lack of self worth was unfathomable. And then I got into the wrong crowd because they made me feel special or wanted, at least, because I was part of the gang. Uh, And I've lived my life like that being a people pleaser, being an overthinker. But what's come from me stopping drinking now is that I've learned about myself, who I am authentically and that I am good uh, and I'm now proud of myself. And what I've seen of you, Leanne, is this this lifelong struggle that you've had, but the way you've turned it around now is is so incredible, you know. Um, especially stopping drinking then having two close friends die from it as well and that could have easily been a platform for you to go Do you know what I saw this but you haven't
1: and I, and I have you know from the deaths of those two people I have seen people in my circle of friends you know it it is affected them and they are drinking more you know yeah. and um, there's there's one friend of mine who's actually through me doing it it was the guy that I actually ran the bar with who's also now gone sober and he's two months sober now you know and and I think it is a case of for me it was life or death Mm. you know and I hope people aren't at that stage where it's like I don't want to live anymore and I look back and the love I have for my child you know she's changed my life how did I get to the point where I was going to leave that You know, Mm. how the dark days were the darkest of times. And I think that's why now the thrive I have for life is just, I shock myself some days of, you know, the things that I sit there in the morning in my bed and plan in my head. Mm. You know, these are dreams that I'm making reality now that are coming true. And it's not easy to, I remember sitting down with my parents and saying, I'm going to start talking about my journey. And I'm going to be open about it. And um, my dad went, I'm really proud of you. Mm. And that that was a moment of time when I just, you know, it, it's very hard as a parent, you know, because I think about how I'd feel if Darcy was like me. It must be awful, you know, to watch your child in this self-destructive mode. But what my dad and my mom see now is I turned it round. I could have carried on. I could have given up. But I didn't. And as my dad says, you don't know who the value that you bring around you. You know, you, he says that I've got like an aura around me and uh, uh I was meant to be here to, to share everything. And I do believe sometimes, you know, as you said, the resilience for the million and one times I've been knocked or pushed or hit down. I've stood up again. And I've got yeah. up stronger and I've got up taller. And now it's about I want to share my, my knowledge and my living experience with others because I just don't want anyone to be sat like I was, you know, looking at light fittings thinking, well, that hold my weight. Will I be able to do it or is it going to work or, you know, sitting, planning which train you're going to jump off in front. You know, it's... um. It's a dark, dark time, and I can't believe that I was there. And some days I can't believe I'm out of it because it's it's like a trickery thing, isn't it? You're mm. you're on this recovery journey that I said earlier, because I actually posted on Instagram my goodbye letter to alcohol after I had a chat with you the other day, actually. Um, and it and it was so it was so hard and so poignant, but I said in my letter that We will never, me and alcohol, will never be completely separated, you know, we will never be divorced properly because I always have to bump into you in the supermarket, at a party, you know, at friends' houses, but I've just got to avoid you and I know how to steer clear of you now and I know that my goodbye is my final goodbye, you'll never pull me back into that bed, you know, like an ex, you know, Mm. it's over for good um unfortunately you can't block alcohol on you know social media and completely out your life because it's always there but you know what what difference and and I have to say to anyone listening that is thinking about you know changing even just changing their relationship with alcohol because I went on for you know 28 years thinking that I didn't at all have a problem with drink I was just a big drinker you know I really look at at what it brings to your life and what you know everyone can live without alcohol it's whether you choose to mm. and it's the same for you know most people alcohol leads on to other things i.e drugs you know harder drugs which are becoming so readily available for people to buy you know you can order anything off the internet to get sent to your house now you haven't even got to go and wait for a drug dealer mm. it's madness. It's just madness. And and I look at the future of what we're trying to do within the sober community, because, say, for instance, my daughter, like Darcy, because of the medication she's on, a drink alcohol would kill her, would kill her. She can never drink. So another part of my mission is to make it sociably acceptable, you know, that people just don't drink you know not because everyone isn't is heavily addicted like i was or because you know even because of medication some people just want a better life and i think that's just so key in life but i look back and i think that if i met someone like myself even 5 years ago i would have called myself a wanker why aren't you having a drink what's wrong with you you know so yeah. it, it massively it's taught me about education this whole Sobriety process is that you know I wasn't educated. I can't be angry at society or at the world. I've just got to educate them.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think what what you've been through is tragic, but it's made you who you are today. Uh, yeah. And when you say you've got an aura around you, I see that. I do see that. And I, I I've watched you on your lives on Instagram, and you're so focused and empathetic. You know, I, I've watched you. Um, I study body language, you know, it's one of my things and you, you've got real empathy. And now we've talked about it on this podcast, I can understand why, because you've really gone to a rock bottom several times and you've come out of that now. And I, I see you almost becoming addicted to life now, living life to its fullest, helping other people see the perils of alcohol and the ways of the world with it. And the ways without it, you know, and um, it's so powerful, Leanne.
1: It's, uh, it's. I, I said the other day to someone, like, I am an addict. I will always be an addict. You know, my birth parents were were addicts, which is part of the reason why, you know, I was adopted. I will always be an addict, but it's what I choose to get addicted to. And from the moment I was told that Darcy was poorly. I got addicted to hope because it's all I had. And that throughout the whole process, throughout everything that we go to. Darcy may not have the same life expectancy as another child. But I hope, and that's all I have, is hope every day. But what I will do for the future and now is I will be present for every second I have with her because it's so precious. I'm addicted to hope. I'm addicted to educating people because as I say you know you can't get cross at people if they don't know you know and I think that's key and I'm addicted to sobriety from going from being such a you know people my nickname was Winehouse people used to call me Winehouse and and think it was funny and I'd be like yeah yeah but now I'm addicted to sobriety and, and and spreading the word and focusing on how we can change people's mindset because I think that if I was taught at a young age or in school of what this could do or I could see a story when I was 15 of a 38 year old woman of what happened to her and everything that she went through my choices would have been different I'm not going to say that I probably wouldn't have had a drink because which teenage kid doesn't want to try a bottle of pop do you know what I mean but my life choices would have been different and You know, I'm here now. I do a different, completely different job. I'm now a writer. I've written a couple of books, which are coming out next year, which I never thought would happen. You know, I'm working on apps with people. I get to work within the sober community. Life is wonderful. For such a long time, I hated the word life. And I think most of the time I just wished it away. And now I value every single, every single second. Sometimes when I'm having a bad day, I just go and stand on my doorstep and I just sniff in the air Mm. and and that's I would never think that I was a person that would do that but to just have that air and have that moment and appreciate I'm here I'm alive and and the power that we have as human beings that we can do the nurture the love that we can show other people the kindness is far better than you know the anger towards our own self-hating loathing lives you know so I think for me, it's just it's just really flipped. And I think for all the bitterness, you know, I could dwell on everything that's happened to me. And I could, even in sobriety, I could still be really sad and really bitter about it and really, really angry. But I'm not. I just have to use that anger in a strength way and use it as power mm. and put my super cape on and go, you know what, girl? this happened to you because you can get over this you can live with it but then you have the power to show other people that this may happen but there is life after all this and you know there are there are choices and I think that for so many years I felt like the only choice I had was white powder or alcohol Mm. and I just I had to break free you know, I had to break free and you can you can break free. It's it's not easy, as we all know. You know, yesterday I had a really bad day and I'm sat there thinking, oh, I'd love I'd love a, I'd love a vodka now. I'd really love a vodka. The thought's never going to leave my head. I just have to be able to control it.
0: Yeah, I'm the same. I, I walked past an all by one in the Strand the other day with them and uh, there was all Christmas lights and there were people with their heads knocking back, laughing with their pints in their hands. And I've had a little twinge, do you know what I mean? Of that ain't going to happen again. But it lasted briefly because I reminded myself of where I would be if I went down that road. And I'm like you, I am aware that alcohol will never leave me. It's like an ex living in the next street and every now and again, you bump into it. Some days you're going to feel strong and walk past and other days you can think, or he or she looks really nice and I miss them, but I'm in charge now and it it sounds like you're in charge and you see it for exactly what it is. And what's interesting after this amazing hour that we've had together is that to get where you are now, you've removed one thing out of your life and that's alcohol. And And that has turned everything around, not just for you, but for Darcy her future your future and all the hundreds and thousands of people that you're going to help in the future as well by even talking today people listening to this and coming off the podcast and going wow just wow do you know
1: what I mean yeah and just it's it to think that taking if I'd have known you know going through all my life trying to fix myself through various things you know after a peak crashing down oh If I'd have known that the one thing that I had to take away was alcohol, because alcohol for me, like I never did drugs on their own. Alcohol led on to drugs. So if I'd have known that I just had to take this one thing away, everything would have changed. I, one, I do wish that me and alcohol had never met or maybe had a briefer love affair than we actually did. But I wish, you know, I'm lucky I've done it now. But I wish, you know, it is something that I wish, as we can all say in hindsight, I'd done it a lot sooner. But I know that the power and the years that I have left, the power with what I've gained from my sobriety, I will make a difference. And to also, I've never really felt part of anything. I've never really fitted in. I've always been like clinging on to different groups. But the sober community, you know, what is th- what is. What a thing that is to be like, I text people daily that I've never, ever met that I know that are like they've turned into best friends. Mm. I I met you through Instagram. This whole sober community is just such a a wonderful thing to be involved in of people that, you know, we're not bashing each other. We're all literally on the same page, striving for the same thing yeah it's just it's just absolute madness and it's a wonderful thing to be part of and I just see it getting bigger and bigger
0: yeah and you know what I see I see a lot of your life of coping on your own but now you've given up drinking you've reached out for community and uh, we all pull each other up you know and all the people I talk to on my podcast of through the community that having our chats that we do every now and again might send each other a message and it's so powerful the strength of community you know and um, when we're drinking we do feel like we're on a desert island on our own and we feel
1: like yeah. no one understands
0: don't we so
1: or we just drink around people that are drinking. you know I yeah drinkers or you know I, I look back and I look at nights when you know there's people that I've drank with for 10 years could I tell you their surname no Yeah. you know they're not real friends they're just people that have facilitated More drinking and more, more substance abuse or more partying. You know, they weren't people. Don't know if you've ever been in the same situation, but like, I've woken up with strangers in my house, like, well, also in my bed. But you know, the abuse that I gave myself was just horrendous, and now I'm such a self-loving. Yeah, well, you put your
0: self-respect back, aren't you, and your self-worth. And you know where you yeah. are now and you've ripped the blinkers off and you can see the view.
1: And I think when you do get a real, you know, I'm never, I'm not going to say I've completely got a handle on sobriety. I will never, I don't think until the day I die, I will say that. But when you've got a bit of a hold on it, you know how bad that place is. So you never want to go back there. And I think at the start of sobriety, you think, oh well I could just have one or I could just do this and I could just do that but when you're further away from it when you're further away from the drinking person you were you actually think oh no it it gets more terrifying about the person that you were before if that makes sense
0: yeah it absolutely does make sense it's like any relationship isn't it the longer it goes on the more you deal with it and accept it you know and it's like that's the way I look at it. Um, I look at exes now and they don't mean anything to me. You know, um, sorry, girls. Well, some but... of them
1: can make you cringe and look yeah. at them and go, oh, how was I with you?
0: Yeah, but it's Which the same with album. alcohol now is that I've seen through it. Um, and I look at it sometimes go, I see you for exactly what you are. Do you know what I mean? And that's yeah. how I live my sobriety is that I'm in charge now. I'm aware it's around me but I ain't letting it in. I'm not leaving the door open one millimetre by saying, oh, maybe I could have one. I'm not doing it because it's got such power that at that one millimetre, it'll open the door wide open and come in and then it'll all start again. So... I have to be in control, and it sounds like you are as well. And Leanne, I just want to thank you so much for being so honest on this podcast because it's been really unbelievable to listen to. And I think you should be so proud of yourself um, for where you are today. And I watch you and you grow, and how you talk to people, inspire people. And I just think you're fantastic. So, oh, thank,
1: thank you, you so much, Dave. Thank you for all everything that you do. And I do genuinely feel that I wouldn't be sat here today without you, you know, and I you hope wouldn't. it is to the future. No, uh, you know, I, I do I do mean that on the dark days of the early sobriety, just to be able to go and look at someone's account because you're not ready to speak to someone and scroll down and, and read their wisdom and know that there is hope because you gave me hope is a, a wonderful thing. And I just, I want to pass that forward. What you passed on to me, I want to pass on. And if we keep passing it on, I do genuinely mm. feel like The world's going to be a different place in a few years, Dave. It's going to be a different place.
0: Well, I'm sure there's been thousands of people who've listened to this and been inspired by um, your journey. So thank you again. And um, one day we will meet in real life, hopefully. We will.
1: We will. And uh, meantime,
0: you take care. And thanks again, Leanne.
1: Thanks, Dave. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
0: Bye. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. And now you can subscribe to my new platform on Patreon, where you can watch the live, unedited video recordings, and you also get two bonus podcasts per month. The link is on my show notes. You can also find me on Instagram, at SoberDave, And please don't forget to subscribe. And if you get a chance, please leave a review. Until then, have a great week and see you next time.